Hello and welcome to The Race to the White House, where we bring you the latest news, politics and policy from the US election campaign trail. I'm Anthony Dockrell and I'll be your host for the next two weeks as we count down to November 8 when America will elect its 45th president. Your usual host, Emma Lancaster, will be back in the hosting chair conducting what will be a very messy and gruesome autopsy on November 9. Joining me in the studio now to guide us through the maze of American politics is Brendan O'Connor. Brendan is an associate professor at the United States Study Centre, where he's taught courses on American domestic politics, foreign affairs, and is an expert in anti-Americanism, neoconservatism, and the Iraq War. And of course, while we're all here, presidential politics. Welcome. Good to be with you, Anthony. Thomas Adams is a lecturer in American Studies and History at the United States Study Centre and the School of Philosophical and Historical Inquiry at the University of Sydney. Welcome, Thomas. Good to be here. Sikile Nzinga-Johnson is a former assistant professor in the Department of Gender and Women's Studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and is currently the Senior Director of Program at the Health Medicine Policy Research Group, an action-orientated policy institute in Chicago. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Cedric Johnson is an Associate Professor of African American Studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago and author of Revolutionaries to Race Leaders, Black Power and the Making of African American Politics. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for joining us in our seventh episode of The Race to the White House. Each week we will be looking at the latest news and tackling the big issues arising from the presidential campaign. This week you're looking at gender, race, class and how these groups are shaping the campaign. Now there's been a lot of talk about Republican candidate Donald Trump and his problem with female voters. So turning to the United States, why is there such a considerable gender gap in US voting patterns? And how much of this gap is due solely to Trump? Well, I'll turn over to our, uh, to our guests who are more expert on this than I am. But I think one thing I've been arguing on the show for the last few weeks is uh, that female voters probably have a handbrake on Trump becoming president, which I think is a good thing. Uh, I think the Access Hollywood tapes are probably were the end of Trump's chances of being elected president, but others might have uh, have a different view, and I think it would be interesting to think about whether the gender gap in terms of female voting patterns compared to male voting patterns in the election in November will be larger than we've ever seen before. Yeah, so I think with Trump, I mean, I think the, the Access Hollywood videos were... Um were probably the, the nail in the coffin, but I think also the way that he responded to it, where uh, he was unapologetic, he denied it, and then then almost immediately after that, you saw numerous women come forward with um, with evidence, right, that he he had lied and that he was guilty of um, all sorts of bad behavior. So I think um, I think that simply amplified the problems for him, or you know, made it much much worse than it could have been had he been more repentant or done a better job of, of uh, damage control. I mean, I think it really showed who he was as a, as a figure um, and, and just, you know, made that, that gap even bigger than it already was. 
I tend to agree with both of you. I think um, it's helpful for us to remember, however, that um, women are not a monolith. And so I think it's really telling that even after he had female supporters and uh, come out in his defense, some wearing T-shirts that endorsed his fondling of their genitals, you know. So he has, um, I, I think it's just really helpful us to, to always remember that women are not a block themselves, are not a voting block. And so you do have a considerable amount of you. U.S. women who have aligned themselves with Trump as well as those who have aligned themselves with uh, Hillary. I tend to think that uh, Hillary has, um, these these tapes have swayed that vote, um, but I'm also just not shocked at the continued alliance uh, with, with Trump even following the uh, his exposure. I think, and I, oh, and I would, you know, just add even before the Hollywood tapes, right? I mean, the, um, I think, the well, the in terms of issues, one of the continuing the biggest predictor of what who you want to vote for is your um, feelings on uh, reproductive rights and abortion. And look, I mean, the, Trump has been adamant from attacking Planned Parenthood at the beginning of the campaign um, to more recently talking very explicitly about Supreme Court justices who will want to overturn um, the right to self ownership and the right to abortion in the U.S. by overturning Roe versus Wade. And I mean, you know, not that there aren't um, plenty of anti-abortion women out there, but these you know these issues do tend to correlate. Or at the gender level, and also, you know, at the kind of more visceral level, the way Trump talks about women, I think, in my, in my sense, and I'm not the best person to answer this as a man, but talking to friends, right, the way he talks about women is very familiar to a lot of women, even who might be inclined to support a Republican and find and they find that very off-putting. Yeah, I come sense. across that as well, and it, it raises this question of some people think the use of the term gender gap is not a very sensible way to talk about things that you should talk about it as a feminist gap, that there can be men as well who support uh, the rights of women or, uh, you know, a less sexist society. And so therefore, on a feminist gap basis, you'd say, well, there should be lots of men who hear those Access Hollywood tapes and say, look, this guy is, uh, you know, a chauvinist pig and he's, uh, you know, he's committing things that are against the law. He's bragging about sexual harassment. so Assault. Uh, sexual assault. So I think... But the evidence is, as, as Thomas is suggesting, it's probably women's votes that in the end are changed by the tape much more than men's votes. I mean, in, in the data that we have, there's probably a swing of more women, Republican women, changing their mind and saying, look, I just can't vote for this guy, rather than maybe independent or Republican men coming out and saying, look, enough's enough. Um, they might say, well, maybe I can't endorse him because I've got a wife or a daughter. Um, but I think changing votes has probably had a bigger impact on women from the sort of statistical analysis I've tried to do on this. It seems pretty hard, though, to kind of isolate that one moment of the tape, right? And that, that you know, I mean, one, I, where you're going to get a kind of big enough sample of people who were voting for Trump two days before that tape and people who were voting for Clinton two days after, even if they're switching to Jill Stein or Gary Johnson or uh, what's his name, that guy in Utah, Evan McMullen. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems hard to be able to kind of say that directly to me, but I'm not the... Mm, look, as a, an outside observer, I mean, the thing that strikes me is that if we take Trump out of the, out of Trump's behavior out of this for two seconds, I mean, this seems to me a problem that the Republican Party has been building up over many years. Mm -hmm. um, Planned Parenthood, these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. the Trump isn't the inventor of this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, how much of this is a Republican problem and how much of this is a Trump problem? Yeah, I think the history of conservatism and the history of trying to control women's reproduction has a long, you know, it, it, it's very long in the U.S. And so... Um, 
and I wouldn't say that Republicans are the only ones who mobilize around that. I think Democrats have a record as well. Uh, if you so. It's, um, but I, but I do think we can kind of look at look through that lens to kind of figure out how women are responding and how women uh, may be mobilizing and voting. Um, yes, yeah, so I'll just stop there by saying it's not just uh, Trump, it's not just Republicans, that it's also um, Democrats that kind of have that long history of kind of controlling women's bodies around issues of reproduction. Cedric has made the argument in a lecture last night that. Uh, Trump is sort of Republicanism stripped bare of some of the niceties of uh, what, it, what maybe you could explain that to the listeners. I think it's an interesting argument. Yeah, so, I mean, I think that there's been an attempt um, by the Republican establishment to separate themselves and, and, and argue that somehow he stands outside of the mainstream of, of the party. But, um, you know, the argument last night was that, you know, if anything, he's more of a Frankenstein type monster, right? He's all of the. the you know, most vile policy stances they've taken over the years stitched together, right? And um, and now out of their control, right? They no longer can really bridle him when they want or get him to abide by some of their their uh, their rules. And, um, and I think that's been the main problem for them over this election cycle, right? That he says things and does things that are just totally off script. And you get the sense that he's not really being, you know, um, he's not really in communication with or, or willing to work on a consistent basis with the the uh, you know the party leadership, um, but one one of the things I was going to say just to kind of circle back um, with respect to his behavior. I mean, I think the Hollywood tapes were were one problem, but you know even before that, right? There was the the talk of the the uh, the one beauty pageant contestant, right? Who he mm. called ugly and talked about how you know it's all sorts of fat shaming that went on. Um, so there's been a string of things, you know, the comedy made about. His daughter. Um, Comedy made about Hillary yeah. defining her as a nasty woman. Yeah, you know? what else? <laughs> I mean, the, are there stuff about, um, you know, I mean, more employment discrimination stuff um, and, wa- and wage gap stuff and uh, parental leave stuff going back to his right. own kind of history? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I mean, Cedric, were you finished? I was, I was no, going to add something there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you saw, I mean, this is precisely the, I mean, I think there was actually the Frankenstein metaphor is perfect in that last debate when he. He does. I mean, the crazy thing about babies being snatched out of the womb at nine months, right? And this, um, he's not getting that out of nowhere, right? I mean, that is the rhetoric that is on the far right, on the far anti-feminist, anti-choice right in America. And that's the way. I mean, and the doctor of pictures, they create these things. And Trump, I mean, Trump probably cares, could care to anything's about abortion, right? I mean, he really, I mean, probably, you know, I'm not going to say probably that, but um, he, you know, this is not something he really cares about. Um, but he is ape, he's been trying to ape the rhetoric, right, of the kind of far right and all sorts of things, right, and the really, you know, what the Hillary Clinton's called the dark corners of the internet. Um, and this is, you know, he clearly got that from somewhere. And that he got that from the, the, a part of the far right in the U.S. that has essentially taken over the Republican Party. Um, especially in regards to reproductive rights. You're listening to The Race to the White House on 2SCR 107.3. To download this podcast, uh, just head to theconversation.com or your favorite podcasting app. We've been discussing how gender is coming into play in the U.S. presidential election. Let's turn to race and racism. Why is Trump so popular amongst white men? Well, I mean, I think, again, this is... We can go back to the long, you know, Republican playbook of, of mobilizing resentments, right? I mean, going back to the civil rights movement you had, you know, with starting with the Goldwater campaigns, you know, George Wallace's independent campaigns, which was still right wing. 
um, and even even Richard Nixon, right? This mobilization against um, the popular protest of the civil rights movement, and really the development of a different notion of of alienation, right? Where it's the the taxpayer who somehow um, now uh, unable to to live by the benefits of his his labor. That labor is now being siphoned off. The 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 uh, money is now being siphoned off and given to various uh, special interest groups, you know, women, uh, African-Americans, uh, other people who are unemployed, right? So that's been around for a long time. And I think, you know, this is just another instance of where we see Donald Trump really taking a part of the the, uh, the Republican playbook and just taking it up, you know, onto, onto a whole nother level. Um, and so we, we've seen that, you know, I mean, what he's done is he's, he's mobilized resentment against immigrants, against um, you know, and, and only against a select group of immigrants, right? Those who who he alleges are rapists and murderers who come across the uh, and the perhaps know. terrorists too. Don't forget, right. don't forget them. <laughs> right. So there's, there's, a, there's all these different dimensions, and also an interesting part of his 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 campaign that I think we probably should spend more time talking about, and that's the the way that he, on the one hand, will will you know uh, foster all sorts of of hate towards Muslims and um, Mexicans. But then just in the last few months, he's tried to to come around to a stance on African-Americans and Latinos, right? That he's actually going to be the one to help. African-Americans. <laughs> right, right. So there's that, there's that really clear yeah. otherizing that he, he engages in. Um, but, you know, he um, he's using an understanding of those populations that's still stuck in the 1960s, right? I mean, it's almost like he's repeating the, the lines from, you know, the Kerner Commission report whenever he talks about... Um, blacks is being kind of confined in inner cities and, and unable to to improve themselves. So there's been some pushback against that. But I think um, where where is that coming from? I mean, what what is the why does he go there? I mean, right. why does he go to these arguments that life is hell for people in the right. inner cities of the United States? He did it in the debates. Yeah. I mean, what is the where does that come from in him or as a political tactic? I think there's two things. One is to embarrass the Democrats, right, and point out that. Democrats haven't really done anything to help. Um, and he constantly points to Obama, right? The fact that there's high murder rates in, in um, Chicago. Just a few cities, too. Right? It's, only, you know, it's I mean, only three or four cities, right, that we've seen a rise. Just, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. But that out of the three but largest Chicago, cities, yeah. Chicago has the <laughs> yeah, highest, Chicago. you know, uh, in sheer numbers. And so um, I think that's one thing to embarrass the Democrats and to point out that, you know, they haven't done anything for you and, and potentially, you know, garner a few black votes. But I think maybe more importantly, it's also to sort of offset the social meanness of his anti-immigrant position, right? And maybe present himself as being a bit more reasonable in front of white voters, right? Those moderate voters who look at him now and say, well, you know, he actually cares about the central cities and he cares about minorities, despite all the stuff he said yeah. about Mexicans and, and, uh, and Muslims. So there's a kind of I classic it, populism to it as well, isn't it? I love everybody. Right. You know, there's no one that sort of has <laughs> oh, more respect for women than me. I love everyone. Yeah. It's got that language of a kind of wedding speech about it a lot of the time yeah. with right. Trump. I think there's a psychology to Trump's um, popularity with white men as well. I mean, he, if you look at him when he presents, he usually looks like he's raging and that he's very angry. And so, and I think he actually is. And so, although he's not aligned with the everyday struggles of everyday white men, he evokes this kind of anxiety in them and he, and he endorses it. He endorses that anxiety, that sense of we're losing control of the country. We're losing it racially. We're, we're um, you know, 
know, the art. And so I, I believe that he endorses, he allows, he amplifies that that rage that many men, particularly white men, are feeling, although he's not really being aligned with their daily you know, so the daily issues of needing um, affordable housing, needing uh, quality jobs, needing access to health care. Those are actually the daily struggles of all Americans. And I, and I would argue that white men fall into that category. Uh, but he evokes this other kind of anxiety and he endorses it. And I feel like that is where much of his popularity, he's gotten into the psychology of their angst, and I feel like he plays into that, you know. Um, so that I feel like that's what's going on as well. And I mean, what's I'm mean, Brendan? You know these numbers better. I mean, what? How is much at a, just a very basic white male demographic level? How much better is he doing than Romney or McCain? Well, it depends at what moment, but right. there's the sense that he, um, you know, is, is going to find every last sort of angry white man in America, and that would allow him to win. Ohio, uh, in the wildest dreams, Pennsylvania, um, you know, he's doing well in, in Iowa through that demographic. So some of the, if you look at the state by state results, it's finding, um, people who maybe didn't come out, uh, to vote last time round has always been the dream for the Trump. Oh yeah. No, I, I mean, that's, yeah, that's certainly his, his, you know, if he want, tries to make some sort of logical argument, how these polls aren't mattering or something, but at, at the kind of broad national level, are white men substantially more likely to vote for Trump than they were for Romney or McCain? Well, you know, I think it's a matter of three, four, five percent more okay. because the white male voters was already very high right, yeah. for those candidates. So, so it's the it's the kind of enthusiasm issue, I think, is probably the interesting yeah. one. Of, well, are we sure that it, there really is that? I mean, you know, look, I mean, you can go to, you know, every good, you know, um, suburban megachurch preacher can get 10,000 excited people out on a Sunday, right? And uh, if you think of Donald Trump like that, um, and like that, you know, he can get 10,000 screaming fans out at a rally. He can get five. 50,000 Twitter trolls, you know, right. posting shit everywhere. That doesn't translate into real excitement and how you kind of go between those two. And actually, you know, when you're talking about a 2 or 3% maybe white male increase in vote from Romney to McCain, you're talking about 1 in 100 Americans right there, right? Yeah. So that doesn't seem like it's actually that much of a really big thing. I mean, obviously, those skins amplify with social media and the very fact that his campaign style is to hold these rallies and to not, right. you know. Yeah, I, I think the problem is this. If the, if the votes... Into the 60s percent, sort of mid-60s or higher, of white males for Trump, it makes governing really hard for Hillary Clinton because the Republicans can say, well, that constituency is not you know, at all favorable towards Hillary Clinton. That constituency still has a certain amount of, you know, purchasing power, watches television, uh, you know, is the is the kind of audience that the Republican sort of men in the Congress probably wish to speak to. And so it it allows this constancy of sort of delegitimizing the president's agenda or allowing the president to get on with the job of actually trying to do something. I mean, but let's imagine a world where, say, Hillary Clinton wins 80 to 20, right, and sweeps the Electoral College, but we still have these gerrymandered congressional districts and we still have a Republican control of the House. Would that Republican majority then sit down and say, oh, now we have to you know, deal with Hillary Clinton. We have to approve her Supreme Court nominees. I mean, I don't like. I don't think they're, the Republicans are going to be blockading her over in the same way they're blockading Obama over the fact that he didn't appeal to the right demographics. That seems like a weird. I, mean, I don't know. What do you guys think of that? I mean, I don't see. I don't see any co any context where the Republicans come out of this election wanting to compromise or you know. Yeah, in this. 
Well, she struggled for legitimacy because, I mean, if you if you follow the narrative, it seems to be like voting for anyone but Trump. There seems to be uh, Republicans saying, you know, I, I, I can never support Trump. So come November 9, and Trump packs up his, his circus and goes back home, will she struggle for legitimacy? I suppose that's my sense of what I'm putting forward, that there's already a strong anti-Hillary Clinton narrative it has a degree of clearly a degree of sexism to it. It has a degree of she's done a lot of compromising things in the past yeah. that she's <laughs> not got a very good way of explaining and probably can never explain satisfactorily how, uh, mm. you know, she dealt with certain issues in the past and where the Clinton Clinton's got all their money from at certain points in time. So there's she's she's vulnerable to attack in a lot of different ways. Now, it doesn't seemed to me the sort of longer term smartest approach of the Republican Party to play as though it's the 1990s or, you know, some point in the 20th century. But there'll be strong tendencies in the party to feed yeah. that rage that Trump, that without Trump, you know, and Trump will be moved aside as, as, as a wrong road that was gone down. But whether there'll be any sense of, okay, there was this report about the, the demographics of this country changing and we might actually have to have a bit of a, look, a serious look at ourselves. That, I think, is a really interesting question. I mean, I think, I mean, just to pick up again, I mean, I'm not entirely convinced that this, I mean, given the last eight years under Obama, that this Republican Party, as it's currently constituted, especially in the Congress, would decide to work with Jesus Christ Jr. if he was elected as a Democrat, right? I mean, I, I like, I'm not... Yeah. The, 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 it doesn't matter what the Hillary Clinton doesn't have a certain legitimacy amongst certain kinds of right wing voters. I mean, they have clearly through, you know, nearly shutting, shutting down the government through nearly uh, <laughs> multiple times or in the Obama presidency, who also didn't have legitimacy in the eyes of some voters. And so it's not legitimacy. It's the Republic. It's the power structure of the Republican Party, it seems like to me. Yeah. When uh, Julia Gillard became prime minister, the one of the things I noticed is that um, the the tempo and the, the heat in politics went up several notches, and a lot of it seemed to be around gender and legitimacy. Mm -hmm. And American politics runs at a much higher temperature than it does here. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that a fear that we see that you know, America having its first female president will struggle on, those, on yes. those lines? I think, but I think her struggle will be similar to Obama's in the ways that he struggled because he was the first black yeah. uh, president. I think that she, I, I think we see this even in her candidacy, you know. Um, so her legitimacy will always be questioned, and sadly, her record doesn't help that that mm. process you know and so uh, I think her legitimacy is questioned in this just in this race on both the left and the right uh, you know and so um, she will have to and, and I don't know how this will happen but she will really have to um, document a way that says she's stepping away from her historic ways of moving through <laughs> <laughs> the world as a politician uh, so that, uh, you know, those on the left see that they have a, a different candidate, you know, a different president and uh, than she was, uh, you know, as a senator. So I'm not I'm not sure, but I think it will always be what struggles. Maybe, you know, uh, it will be always be part of her, her struggle as the first female president of the United States, just as it was with Obama, you know. Um, yeah, I think that I mean, um I agree with Thomas that the, the Congress is going to be obstructionist mm -hmm. no matter what. Um, but I think what's made it worse is, again, uh, Trump's rhetoric, right? I mean, he's actually said things to further, you know, delegitimize uh, Clinton and even stoke, 
you know, uh, assassination, right? I mean, he's 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 you know entertained these things in his in his his speeches, and um, you know now he's going around questioning the the you know the the fairness of the election, right? And claiming that there'll be all manner of fraud going on in the election. So I think there are many people among his base who will not accept the the uh, the results. Some of them will be demoralized, but he's already kicked up you know all sorts of conspiracy theory and even said you know outright that one he if he was if he was elected that he would you know he would sue her now he's saying he would sue the women who've accused him he's also talked about um you know alluded to the nra and you know the the gun owners right the gun lobby potentially dealing with clinton in a certain way and so i think that's the for me that's the more that's the scarier part of all of this right i mean i think if he was john mccain or someone else who just, you know, packed up his stuff and left. That would be one thing, but... Who himself has recently said that he will not... They will block every Hillary Clinton Supreme Court nominee. So right, I mean, He's not right. exactly the pillar of compromise here. Right, um, right. But, but he's not engaging in the same sort of, right. you know, uh, vitriol, right? And McCain did put down Palin when she started getting yeah. a little crazy. But, I mean, uh, yeah. well, let, me, I mean let me perhaps give a little more optimistic vibe. I mean... Perhaps Trump, I mean, Trump does not have complete legitimacy within the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that's just for strategic reasons, I think, on the part of people like Paul Ryan and Mitt Romney that, you know, look, I mean, as Cedric pointed out, I mean, the ideas he's putting forward with the exception of trade are ideas that have dominated Republican politics for decades. Um, but insofar as, I mean, Trump doesn't have legitimacy and there's going to be a massive civil war within that party starting on November 9th, and I think mm-hmm. there is, that might actually provide a break for some... Republicans and the Congress in particular um, to, in fact, force themselves away from the Freedom Caucus, which really is kind of hamstrung um, con- congressional agenda. How many times do they push forward votes to def- um, to um, uh, defund Obamacare and things like what 90 some, 90 some inconsequential votes, right? Um, so if you know if there's a massive war within the Republican Party, the people, the anti-Trump factions, are going to have to look like they're doing something, and that might be doing something by actually getting some things done and compromising. Yeah, I mean, the big problem is this. This would be my argument, that the Republicans in the House are likely to have a very slim majority. Maybe, say, say they have a 10-seat majority in the House of Representatives. To be Speaker of the House, you need to have a majority of people in the House, not a majority within your own party. So Paul Ryan potentially won't have that. There'll be 20 people who are probably the most sort of pro-Trump at the moment, who have the biggest majorities, who will say, look, we're a handbrake on Ryan unless he gives us some certain things. So the the people that are kind of most aligned to Trump and most likely to be fed into the kind of rage that Trump is building up do have some effective handbrake on who will be the next speaker within the Republican Party. So they're the sort of, before they can have the civil war of sort of a post-mortem of the future of the party, they have the practical issue of who they're going to have as their sort of number one person in really in the Congress and yeah. as spokesperson in America. So that will give um, some power to probably the most angriest voices. But I, I mean, um, I honestly think if, I mean, there is a Republican donors... I mean, I, much more actually than the politicians, right? I mean, the financial base of the Republican Party does not particularly like Donald Trump for um, reasons of his unpredictability, for his relationship with some of the trade stuff, but mostly I think because he's delegitimizing the party long term in their own kind of interests in hypercapitalism. Um, and I mean, I wouldn't be if if Paul Ryan gets if there's an attempt to oust him, I wouldn't be surprised if you see twenty or so Congress people cross aisle and actually 
put forth a one of them asked Democrats to you know get your um, to work with them to put forward a speaker. I mean, these things are possible, and I can't see. I mean, if Ryan becomes the second person relatively popular in the party who's had these divisions after Boehner to basically be to have a coup against him, the, 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 that party can't survive that. I mean, maybe it become maybe it divides into two parties. I don't know, but it doesn't seem like to me that could really work. Yeah, there's a lot of chaos ahead yeah, to look forward fun. to. <laughs> <laughs> Let's turn to class. Now, a lot of commentators uh, are keen to dump on Trump supporters as white trash. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair assessment? Is, are Trump supporters white trash? Is there an economic dimension to this? I think it was Donald Trump himself who said you can never use that term. You can use it clearly <laughs> yeah. every other term, but <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a term that you should never use in polite society, according to Trump. Or on TV, at least. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's been overstated, right? Um, I mean, and there have been a few people who've written about um, his base and trying to parse out his base as being not so much um, working class whites or poor whites, but really um, more middle class mm-hmm. and, and even affluent whites mm-hmm. who, who support him. And I think um, it's become an easy foil, even for people on, on the left, right, to sort of discredit his base is like these old, you know, disgruntled Archie yeah. Bunker yeah. types, or right? Even I deliver, mean, or even deliverance type, right? We're thinking yeah. fiddles here in the Georgia countryside, but, yeah. There's but, some of that, but... Yeah. I mean, I think, look, I mean, to me, you know, and one of the kind of conundrums put forward by the data we have is the the, the median income is higher for Trump supporters than the mm-hmm. average generation, but they're also, again, this kind of base is non-college educated, right? So who is that? Right. Yeah, who are who are relatively wealthy, not educated people, and these are people like contractors who were probably right. destroyed in the 2008 bubble. These are people in the building trades and stuff like that we were talking about last night. These are people who are seeing a kind of downwardly mobile trend towards their jobs, and also are seeing a world in which higher education is, in fact, a growing need for um, and to be successful in the economy. But this is not, you know, your vision. This is not the image of white trash you know, that you think of in the Florida pan. I mean, these are people who had, you know, McMansions in before the housing exactly. bubble, right? Mm-hmm. Um, these are people mm-hmm. who are building far exurban communities. And again, they're also tends to, they're not that kind of small town people. Again, it's an exurban, yeah. Sakila, right. did you want to jump in? I actually think, I think it's them and I think it's their sons. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I think it's intergenerational. It's actually yeah. those young students who are in college and are also feeling the wave of the impact yeah. of their fathers who've lost yeah. their McMansions and lost their jobs that and who are mobilizing also around gender, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. uh, and who are very anti-Hillary because they are sexist, you know. And so I think that um, it's it's there's it's more than just the, yep. those those. And that's, you know, that's a great right. point. Yeah, I, think, you know. I mean the Gallup survey showed that a lot. That one of the big things that came out of that this is a sort of deepest dive into people's attitudes for why they're voting for Trump was a lot of concern about the next generation. Yeah. So these are people, average incomes around, you know, 75, 80,000 is the average income of the Trump voter. So, but they're concerned that their children, if they don't get an education, because the often, you know, the a large number of Trump voters don't have college education. I mean, that is one of the divides. Yeah, but that's I not mean, necessarily think, an economic class divide I, I is think, the key point. I think a sort of one point I disagree with you, Thomas, is I think in the primary season you get different voters that come out. I mean, very small numbers of voters that right. come out. So Republicans who come out in primary season tend to be wealthier than Democrats who come out in general. But if you look at the general election sort of data, 
Trump, white Trump voters are likely to be poorer than white Hillary voted, Hillary Clinton yep. voters. That That is a difference. So yep. it's very hard to talk about income and voting because of a lot of the minority voters for the Democrat candidate. I mean, they're in lower income brackets. We know there's sort of statistics about mm-hmm. sort of economic disadvantage in the United States. So if I think if you, you were to sort of look at only... Um, white male voters under $50,000 a year. Trump has pretty big advantage in that area from all the data that I've looked at. Now, those people shouldn't be called white trash, and they have all sorts of reasons for being drawn to I don't know. I don't think his advantage is as high as you think with that group, though. It's not as as high as at that next tier up economically. No, it Um, is. That's that's the only group that he has an advantage over Hillary Clinton with. So all other groups Hillary Clinton is winning with income and sort of gender-wise – the only group where Trump had a majority in sort of polling going back about a month was people, white men earning under 50000 That's 15, the only yeah. one that he's yeah. ahead, exactly. group that he's ahead exactly. with. Um, now, how we analyze that, yeah. I think, is a sort of yeah. the more interesting yeah. question. Yeah. Okay, so we've got this. Well, but uh, that also speaks to something that gets forgotten in all sorts of these discourses, too, is that there's, that means there's a lot of white men in America earning under $50,000. Um, right. If he if he's losing every other demographic and yet it's still only down by 10 points. And that's why I said earlier that he's able to pull on that emotionality yeah. of that because they actually feel a sense of entitlement that they should not be earning yeah. that much, you know. And so he's yeah. pulling on the heartstrings of folks who feel entitled to be doing better uh, than than other groups. And then there it allows him to then blame the same groups that he's identified as the, the, the people who are not making America yeah. Yeah, and I want to yeah, pick up you know, on what you, Sakia, yeah. you said earlier about the kind of sons, because I think you see this on campuses in Australia, but I think in the U.S. too, this kind of growth of men's rights exactly. and stuff like that. Yeah. And that seems like, I mean, one, Trump fits into that rhetoric so perfectly about, you know, false accusation and things like that, right? And the kind of besmirching of a name, the way he talks about it. I mean, there's women, there's now, what, 10 plus women have accused him of sexual assault in the last freaking week. Um, but that is, a, that's a, you know, that's not an economic Group. It's, it's a group motivated. It's a yeah, yeah. It's a group motivated by a, tra- a notion of a traditional ownership over the family exactly. and ownership over women's sexuality to some degree or another. I that agree. has been largely. I mean, that's been phased out of American culture. Um, I mean, not in any you know, not in completely by any means, but it has been you know, real changes have been made in that, and these people feel they feel under attack. And they feel like something's being taken away, and it's the right there's the rights to women. As people that work in universities, I mean, what what do we make of the fact that the most likely Trump voter is a well-educated woman, regardless often really of of racial background? So that that's the biggest majority that that Clinton has, and she has she's likely to win the college-educated white vote for the first time ever in sort of American history. The Republicans have had that vote, so the more the more people have sort of access to higher education, um, get degrees, the more they're drawn to a candidate who, you know, isn't truthful on everything, but on a truth basis is uh, a lot better than Trump's sort of constant kind of uh, fabrication of facts and, you know, his own world that he lives in of evidence. So, I mean, is there a sense that all of this sort of uh, arguments over fact-checking and, you know, making up your own reality, that in some, at some point education is of, has of some use in terms of electoral politics, that people who want to follow an evidence-based politics yeah. are going to be drawn away from conspiracy theories about global warming or whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I was going to say something else, though, about um, that the, the working-class white male 
voters who we, we we're saying that vote for Trump or support Trump. I mean, I think part of the problem is that the the Democrats, right, over three different administrations, you know, three once Clinton's elected, um, pretty much haven't done anything to to really consolidate that base, right, of of disgruntled, dis, you know, um, alienated. Voters, I mean, right? Three, go back to two of Clinton too, and you know, right. give one of Carter. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, you've got you've got you know successive uh, administrations which haven't really done the old things, right? I mean, one of the things that Roosevelt did, right, was was he created when he created the Civilian Conservation Corps, he made sure that there was one in every um, congressional district, right? So it was, it was sort of like people could immediately see how his administration was helping, right, their local population. We haven't really seen Democrats engage in that kind of politics, right? I mean, it's, it's in some ways they've not only cast aside um, or taken for granted the black vote, as as you know Trump wants to say, um, but the same is true for a lot of of uh, you know working class folks. And I mean, they've done things that have been directly you know adversarial, right? I mean, um, and it's not like the Republicans have done a lot better, but I think they haven't really engaged in the kind of politics that was part of that old New Deal coalition. Yeah. Which well, it's when you're not offering someone anything, which I mean, exactly. then when then when someone comes along and starts offering you, I will you know defend you from these invading hordes. I will right. keep the keep your traditional prerogatives over women exactly. in place, right? And I mean that Cedric's your that's your point spot on, right? I mean you saw this in the kind of in the pre-Trump moment of the Tea Party. And those kind of, I mean, those signs, you know, those funny signs going around, keep your government hands off my Medicare, right? Mm-hmm. You know, med- the universalism of both New Deal and some great society programs were because it was completely taken away in the Clinton years, and, and back to Carter, too, for that matter. Mm-hmm. And you say, even with, you know, Afford- um, Affordable Care Act and Obamacare, it is not, it's not at all pitched as a universalistic policy, right? It is pitched as essentially a market-based policy of which some people can get in um, at certain levels, but it's not... It's not something that comes to every town or county or congressional district, or you can see it as a struggling white male who is not getting anything from either party, except for Republicans are telling him left and right that you know they'll defend his family. They'll. Okay, well, it's time for our gut call. We've less than three weeks to go. If the election was held today, is there anybody in the room who actually thinks that Trump would win? No, I mean, I think the Clinton campaign are really hoping the election would be today or tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, there's this, something else comes out. Yeah, I mean, I don't think any big surprise is going to make a difference at this point because we've had so many ridiculous things said by Trump all year round. What can get more surprising than saying you can shoot people or ban a sort of quarter of the world's population from your country? I mean, Hillary Clinton, we've also heard, you know, things throughout the campaign from WikiLinks. But I think one of her problems is clearly people are sick of this election. And it's driving out that vote, just making sure people under 30 get out to the polls and um, keep caring about there not being a Trump presidency. Is a low turnout the only Trump card that Trump has? I don't know if a low turnout even helps him. <laughs> low yeah. turnout yeah. generally suppresses yeah, younger think, voters, yeah. maybe some minority voters. I think it makes it closer. Voters. I think it makes it more of a nail-biter, the, but I don't think it's going to affect the, the outcome. Mm. Yeah, you know? I mean, That brings us to the close of our seventh episode of The Race to the White House. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the Conversation website and you can search for us in your favourite podcasting app. The show is produced at the studios of TRCR 107.3 with the support of the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney and The Conversation. Thanks to Brendan O'Connor, special guests Sikhilai Nzinga-Johnson, Cedric Johnson and Thomas Adams for helping us make sense of it all. We'll be back next week. 
with what will be our final show before the election day. I'm Anthony Dockwell. Thanks for your company.